Let me add my uh, good morning to all of you. My name is Jack Bailey. I'm Senior Vice President at GlaxoSmithKline here in the Triangle. And I have the uh, distinct honor to um, introduce our next speaker. Before I do that, though, uh, I, I just want to share with everybody uh, or add my congratulations, frankly, on a wonderful CED conference. I had the chance to be part of the steering committee for this year's conference again, and certainly I'm going to extend my appreciation and hard work for everybody on that steering committee and obviously everybody at CED, including Joan, Drew, and the entire cast. So please join me in a round of applause for the great work that now, one of the uh, most significant trends in our industry, in the healthcare industry these days, is really around nutrition, both in terms of basic research around it and from a regulatory perspective. Certainly, our second speaker this morning is well-versed on both of those disciplines, as he is the chief scientist and CEO of the Global Nutrition Group. Dr. Mahmoud Khan oversees the company's efforts to reduce salt and introduce healthy elements into the product line. He is uh, tasked with translating the science into policy and also finding ways to drive innovation to make it easier and tastier, which we're all interested in, to, ha to eat healthy at both breakfast and lunch. The Global Nutrition Group at PepsiCo was formed in 2010, and it's key, it is a key strategic initiative for the firm. The goal is for them to double their revenue here uh, between now and 2020, in addition to achieving this goal, Dr. Khan also leads the uh, efforts to launch research partnerships with universities, ensuring um, also opening various R&D centers, and ultimately uh, directing the company's environmental efforts uh, and initiatives, including plant-based and biodegradable packaging. Dr. Khan's career uh, includes a faculty appointment at the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Medical School, where he directed Diabetes, Endocrine, and Nutritional Trials Unit. Prior to joining PepsiCo, he was the president of the Takeda Global Research and Development Center. He also practices what he preaches, unlike some of us, in that he is a, uh, a very active runner who uh, inevitably has uh, been able to, or enviably has been able to maintain the same weight that he had in college today. So with that, please join me in a warm welcome for Dr. Khan. That was the <laughs> well, good morning. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'd like to thank the organizers, and in particular Drew and uh, a friend and colleague, uh, Victor Zhao, um, who invited me to participate here. I've already at breakfast this morning had a number of questions which have been fascinating, one of which uh, was uh, a common theme was, oh, is PepsiCo interested in life sciences? And then the other question I often get is, what's an endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic doing in the food and beverage industry? And as you just pointed out, I actually have two jobs at PepsiCo. If we think about our business as a $67 billion a year business, I head up R&D for the enterprise. That is from agronomy and agriculture through product development, through processing, engineering, packaging, the whole supply chain. It gives me a very broad view from the vantage point of the second largest food and beverage company in the world and the largest one in the United States. The second role I have is to help accelerate and unlock the value of our nutrition businesses, which currently are about $13 billion in revenue. And as we've said, we're going to grow those to 
30 billion by the year 2020. But what I would like to do is, from that vantage point, share with you really what I think about as the global challenges facing our planet, humanity, but at the same time, share with you why I'm excited at the opportunity ahead. I mean, it's a tremendous opportunity. We hear about the gloom and the economy and everything else, but let's just think about the opportunities. And what I'm going to frame it up is some very simple statistics, present to you some facts. And I'd like you to think about four C's. Cities, consumers, connectivity, and customization. Just four simple concepts. Let's think about cities first. Our world population, to give you a little historical perspective, the population of our planet in terms of humans was 1 billion in the year 1800. 1 billion people. From 1800 to 1900, it grew relatively exponentially such that from 1900 to the year 2000, we added 1 billion people in 100 years. From the year 2000 to the year 2011, it grew from 6 billion to 7 billion. So in one decade, we added 1 billion people, which had taken 100 years prior to that. It gives you some idea of what's happening, and our population today is 7 billion. The world's population is going to be estimated at 9 billion by the year 2050. We're going to add 2 billion more people between now and the next 40 years. That's what's happening. But it's not a simple increase in numbers. In the 1970s, there were three cities that were mega cities with populations of more than 10 million. Two of them were in the developed world. Today, there are 15 cities over 10 million. And by the year 2050, it's estimated there will be 50, of which there will only be three in the developed world. Today, 70% of humanity lives in cities. And here's the striking statistic. Between now and the year 2015, 90% of the growth in population is going to happen in cities. 15 of them. 15 cities will account for 90% of the growth of the population of the earth. Now, okay, so that's the population demographics. That's what's happening. That's the cities part. It isn't just a growth in population. It's occurring in urbanization. The second to think about from a food and beverage point of view is how are we going to feed the planet? Just that simple question. How are we going to feed the planet? This is not just a developing world issue. It's a developed and developing world. It's a global economy. Two important things are happening. Just think about this. Historically, there were farmers and there were consumers. And the farmers were typically the consumers. You ate and consumed food that you either grew or you bought in the village around where you lived. Now you take 50 cities around the world with populations of 10 million or more, a dozen cities with 20 billion or more, they ain't growing any organic farms. They're not even living within 10 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, and often 100 miles of where the food is grown. So we have a dramatic global challenge, a huge population at an increasingly greater distance from where food is grown. The opportunity... How do we get this food in their hands in a clean, 
consistent, safe, and affordable manner. So if you think that food processing and the food industry is something that is not going to be critical to solving that problem, think again. Okay? You cannot produce and distribute food that is safe, clean, and effective at anywhere near an affordable price unless you figure these two things out. That's one opportunity. It's unlocking that opportunity. The second, interestingly, is if indeed, and let's just take the United States and the CDC, if we did in America what the CDC recommends, that is it consumed three to five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, if we just did that in the U.S. today, we'd be increasing our consumption of fruit and vegetables per person by one. That's all, one serving per person per day. We would have to increase the production of food and bev- fruit and vegetables in the U.S. equal to the total production of the state of California. Just to meet the CDC's recommendations. Which means we'd have to create the land, water, and climate of another California. Clearly, that's not going to happen. What are the options? Well, the old way was that was easy. We'd go south, we'd go to the east, and we'd buy our fruits and vegetables, bring them back, and provide them to our consumers. That opportunity is rapidly going away. Why? Because it has tremendous impacts on commodity pricing for the local producers in the developing world who need those nutrients just as much as we do and perhaps more. Secondly, you have from the East, a tremendous pull for those consumable goods, for those commodities coming out of China and India with increasing economic power to compete for the same commodities. So if you think the impact on commodities is going to go away, it's going to have to force us to rethink several variables and several parameters as we think about this as a global world food economy. Now, I'll come back to why we're thinking about this here at the Life Sciences, but I want to just paint for you, for an audience that may not think about this from a global perspective on a daily basis, we just go to the supermarket and pick it up, of what the impact is of what's happening around the world. It is not just simply China's got more capital, India's got more capital. It is going to change dramatically the dynamics of the very basic fundamental life support that we have, which is food. And with it, water. We cannot create land, but even more so, we cannot create water, which is even more stressed globally, including in the U.S. A tremendous part of our agricultural base in the U.S. is now water stress. Just go to Texas, go to Southern California, go look around the country, and you'll start to understand that water has become a tremendous asset if you have it. Now, often, the existence of water and the existence of climate, when it think about from an agricultural point of view, are not existing in the same location, which is going to open up a whole different opportunity, and I'll come back to that. So what does this mean? It means we have to rethink product design. We have to rethink production. We have to rethink distribution, and we have to rethink marketing. Before I come to the third, which is the connectivity and the consumer, let me just ask you to think about the simple statistic. 40% of the food that we produce today is thrown away after it's harvested. 40% of all the food produced on the planet today actually is not ultimately consumed. That's after it's been harvested 
Why is that? Two different reasons equal to the same amount. In the developed world, in the U.S., Europe, that 40% is lost from our kitchens and from restaurants after it's got to the consumer's hands. We're going to have to rethink shelf life, portion size, packaging size, distribution, shelf life, life in the refrigerator. If we're going to change that 40%, we're going to have to change that. How we think about stocking and selling out of our restaurants, how we think about serving in the restaurants, because the cost of that food, as well as the global supply of that food, is going to increasingly get limited. It's going to change whole industries. Let's think the the developing world. It's a different thing. 40% of the fruits and vegetables grown in India and Africa and South Asia are lost because they rot after they've been harvested because of lack of infrastructure to store, process, and distribute. Couple that with mega cities and the old model from the U.S. and Europe of producing large factories with 16-wheel trucks distributing this product does not work when you live in Mumbai, Shanghai, or Sao Paulo when that 16-wheeler is sitting in traffic for three hours spending 10 minutes actually distributing and two and a half to three hours burning up fuel, which is an expensive commodity trying to get the produce to where the consumer is. And as that distance gets bigger and bigger then that produce delivery becomes a greater and greater part of your cost structure, the middle of your P&L, starting to erode your profits. So those are sorts of challenges. It's going to challenge production footprint, distribution footprint, the mechanism by which we distribute, and the type of companies that engage in this space. So let me now come to the opportunity. I hope I've given you a perspective not only of the magnitude of the challenge, but the size of the price. We at PepsiCo have 22 blockbusters. Those are 22 brands that sell more than $1 billion each. We had three new ones this year that grew from sub $1 billion to $1 billion. But the beauty of it is not one of them has a patent expiry date. There is no cliff for those 22 blockbusters. It's a great business to be in. It's a great growth business with a growing consumer base. We have one billion consumers in the world that consume one of our products every week. One in seven humans pick up a Pepsi product every week and do it consistently. We know how to brand. We know how to market. We know how to distribute. But how are we going to think about it in the future? One of the reasons the Global Nutrition Group was created was to take love brands that I have responsibility for, like Quaker Foods, Tropicana, Gatorade, our dairy businesses, is what are they going to look like 10 years from now? How are we going to change, and how is that going to impact overall how we think about it? So let's think about opportunity. Imagine what we do for a second today when we produce a beverage or a food. How do you think we maintain its safety and its integrity? It's usually with one paradigm, heat. We heat the liquid, we put it in a bottle. We heat the food, we put it in a package. It's a great way of getting rid of bacteria, stabilizing the food, stop it from oxidizing, and get it to the consumer. That need to get it to the consumer, as I hope I've pointed out to you, isn't going to go away. But how we inhibit that bacteria, how we preserve its nutrients, how we get it in the hand of the consumers, there's a tremendous unlock there when different technologies, different industries come together and try solving this problem. How we think about packaging, 
is going to rapidly change. The idea and the notion of shipping water and air in packages is going to have to be rethought. The size of production and distributed manufacturing is going to have to be rethought. The engagement between life sciences and traditional agriculture is going to have to be rethought. We're looking at agronomy and agricultural biology in ways we've never done before, partnering with life sciences technologies that the food industry has never considered in the past. Let me give you an example of what might happen in the future with the world's leading sports brand is Gatorade. Gatorade, for most people, everybody, I'm just... But everybody in this country sees Gatorade just about every week. You watch any professional sport and you all, it's an icon, that dunking. We were celebrating the Super Bowl this year because we didn't care which side won. Both quarterbacks were great fans of Gatorade. Okay? Now, what does it mean? Well, Gatorade today has a whole portfolio of products. It used to be a beverage. Now it's bars. It's drinks. It's a whole system. We call it the G-Series. Tremendous success. What's the tomorrow look like? Well, you mentioned, Alex mentioned diagnostics. Could you imagine an athlete that says, customization? I want to know during my sport what I take. The nutrient needs of an NFL football player versus a tennis player versus a soccer player versus a cricket player may be completely different based on climate, intensity, the sport as we start to understand their needs, as we start to understand real-time feedback loops, it's going to start to change the way which the product engages with the consumer. Marketing starts to change because we have a socially connected global population. Not only that, but could you imagine as we look further that it's not just Gatorade the product, it's the ecosystem. How athletes themselves are connected. Our Gatorade Sports Science Institute, which studies science... The science of sports is now embedded with the Nick Bellateri Institute down in Florida. It's part of the training program of the world's top elite athletes. For those of you who know tennis, that institute has developed 26 number one world-seeded athletes. Just in tennis alone. Forget the NBA, NFL, and all the rest. We've just next month opening the Gatorade Sports Science Institute in Loughborough, the UK's premier sports facility for research and science. We're looking at Asia, we're looking at Latin America. As we think about engaging with the athlete and the science of exercise physiology, it changes that. What is that teaching us about aging and movement and nutrition and exercise as we get older and the elderly? It's going to change the dynamics of how we engage with the consumer. All of these are just examples of how these industries are starting to evolve. So somebody like myself who came from endocrinology, the pharmaceutical industry, now the food and beverage industry, and actually I started my career teaching at the College of Agriculture at the University of Minnesota 20-some years ago. It just took me a quarter of a century to figure out what I really wanted to do. But at the end of the day, what it's telling me is that the opportunity to unlock this value is going to happen out of partnerships we never imagined, out of collaborations we'd have never thought about, out of bringing people from disciplines we'd have never considered. But as we start to do it, let me leave you with one other fact. The future large industry partners aren't those necessarily that were grown here in our own backyard. The third largest beverage company in the world, the third largest beverage company in the world, and the largest ready-to-drink tea company in the world, most of you have never heard of, 
called Tingyi. That company has never sold a single product outside China. And yet it is already the third largest in the world. It is now a partner working collaborative with us at PepsiCo. The dynamics and the partnerships themselves are starting to change. So, my friends, if many of you are wondering, what's an academic endocrinologist thinking about at a company that's got a long tradition in the food and beverage and consumer goods, I hope I've given you a little insight into the unique opportunities, the innovation, and the way we are looking to change this industry from a value point of view, from a consumer point of view, and how the future might look. We've got a great leader in a CEO and chairman that's very visionary in this respect, and I'm blessed to have her as a boss. But this is going to be a tremendous ride as we move to the future. Let's not think about the challenges, but turn those challenges into great opportunities that they are. Thank you very much.